guest speaker today who is going to introduce herself, Victoria Glow. And uh, before she comes up, I am going to be reading the scripture for today. We are reading from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I do not make life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, broom bush <laughs> sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. After also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel and announced Elisha, son of Zapheth from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouth have not kissed him. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. 
I guess I feel like the first thing I should say is I'm sorry it was 18 verses. <laughs> Thank you for reading it. And then you sick those verses on someone, all those names, and trying to get them all out of our mouths, right? But um, thank you for bearing with it, because <clears throat> what I feel like I can bring to you today is just simply story. And this is part of Elisha's story, and it is through our stories that we learn from each other. And um, that's really what was um, speaking to me in the last month or so. But before we dive into the verses, I just wanted to introduce myself a little bit so you know who's standing here today talking with you. Um, I met Kyle a couple of years ago when my family and I were on a search for a church ourselves. And I had been to Gateway years before that and was really intrigued. And then life happened and we never ended up going back. And then we all know the story about COVID. And then I started thinking, and I wonder what's going on at that Gateway Church. And I looked it up online and still intrigued by what was just written there. It was things that resonated with my heart, um, the things I didn't see that often out there in the church world. So things like spiritual formation and transformation and becoming like Jesus. And so I was intrigued. So anyway, I reached out to Kyle, and we had this long conversation that I thought, would, I mean, I'd hoped it would never end, but we both had to be places eventually, and we just talked for hours, and it was wonderful. And we kept in touch off and on, and then we had another one of those long conversations at one point, and I was just saying to somebody else that he just felt like a brother from another mother. Like, I just, we were kindreds, we were on the same wavelength, and so when he um, called and asked if I would be willing to step in a few times, said, sure, of course, I would be happy to do that. Um, but I'm sorry that it's in the context of your losing him. That is, um, I'm sure, a difficult place and varied for each of you and how you're experiencing that. Um, I'm a spiritual director here in town, and that's pretty much what I do. I offer spiritual direction. I offer spiritual retreats group spiritual direction, um, and so on and so forth. Been in Christian ministry for 20 plus years off and on in various contexts. So this is really what my heart beats for. It's kind of what I, I long to do. Um, and on top of that, I had a background before that in health promotion. And so a lot of the work that I've done focuses on um, self-care and health and well-being in the context of Christianity. And what Jesus might think about that, because we talk about that differently than we do today. And then I also have um, fun teaching yoga and getting to see the intersection of mind, body, spirit, and how that all comes together. So that's just a little bit about me so you know where I'm coming from, because as we talk through these verses from First Kings today, that is the lens I bring you. So, I mean, I, I'm my own theologian, right, because we're all theologians, but I'm not a trained theologian. So I bring the lens of spiritual director to you as we walk through some of Elijah's story. Um, and I'll stick around a little bit afterward if you have reflections or things you want to share, one of those things you think, oh, when, when we were talking about this, this you know, struck me, or this is what um, was standing out to me. And really, that's the crux of hearing God's voice, right? Just in our everyday life, walking and talking and moving around and reading scriptures, that we just pay attention to where the, the bold print is, to where the highlight is, and what's happening in our mind, our body, and our spirits as we are living our lives. 
whether that be in direct communication with scripture or just walking down the street and gazing at a sunset or gazing at um, someone whose life situation might be different than ours. So that's what I invite you to do today as we're walking through this. Um, yeah, and then we'll just go from there and see how it all unfolds. So let's begin a little bit with um, an exploration of, let's back up. Let's first say we come to this scripture story with one very important question that we heard um, that was read. With plenty of chaos and tumult in Elijah's background and encounter with war and um, death and tragedy, he is presented one question from God. What are you doing here? But before we go into that question, let's uh, look at the backstory a little bit. So we come to this point in history, uh, and Israel has had king after king. And from what we understand in previous chapters of First Kings, these kings aren't really holding up their end of the bargain. They are wicked. And the scriptures say that the kings are growing in wickedness. In fact, all the way up until Ahab is king, we see an increase in that. And then Ahab is said to be more wicked than all of them. He has grown in wickedness. And it says that he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than all the kings before him. Can you imagine being like forever put down in history? Is that your legacy, that you have aroused the anger of the Lord more than all the kings? So that's what, or that's what Elijah's dealing with in his context and being asked to serve the Lord and to speak into this type of an environment. Elijah's on the scene, and he's had his own intense experiences um, Yes. Okay. So Elijah's on the scene. He's had an intense experience in which now he's being asked to have a showdown with the gods of Baal, the god Baal, with the prophets of Baal. They think their god, Baal, is the god. They're convinced. And Elijah understands that the Lord God is the true God of Israel. And so for some reason, they all decide that the best way to prove this is that they are going to have a showdown with two different altars, and each team will place a sacrifice on the altar, and whichever God answers in fire is the one true God. So Elijah douses his altar with water and builds a trench around it, which also fills with water, and this should make fire impossible, right? So he's, he's setting things up a little bit here. The prophets of Baal call on their God all day, all evening, and nothing happens. Do you know the story? We, most of us probably know the story, but just in case you don't. And then Elijah calls on the Lord, and he strikes down with fire, and he burns everything up, the altar, the sacrifice, and Scripture says that even the water in the trench was licked up by the fire. Kind of feels like an exclamation point, that licking up, doesn't it? So it really wasn't a true showdown, was it? No, because Baal doesn't exist. But in their minds, he did. So that's where we are. And earlier in Kings, Elijah experiences the Lord's provision in other incredible ways. He's brought food by a raven. 
and drinks from a brook. And when the brook dries up, he continues receiving God's provision through a widow who only has a bit of flour and oil, the only makings of food left in her home, and it's not even enough to feed herself and her son for one day. Yet, somehow, this food is made to last for many days and sustains Elijah and the widow and her son. And then the son dies, and Elijah prays for him to be healed, for him to rise from the dead, and he does. So here we are. Imagine seeing all of this. I mean, wow, these are mind-blowing situations in which the basic physical laws of the universe are being bent in order to support Elijah and the people he encounters. How would you feel? I mean, how would that, what would that be like for you if you were experiencing this? Raven bringing you food? Seeing food multiplied, I mean, we see that happen again later. It's a familiar story, right? And then praying for someone to come back from the dead, and they do? Where would your faith be? And how would you be responding to this? Just imagine. We, you, probably the best answer is, I have no idea. But can we imagine what that would be like? So we continue on with the story. After the altars, the fire, the slaying of Jezebel's prophets. Forgot to mention that if you don't know the story. After God consumed the altar, then all the prophets of Baal were slayed. They were killed okay, on Elijah's watch. So we continue on and see that Ahab is going to run off and tell Jezebel exactly what has happened. And Jezebel is Ahab's wife. She is evil, and she loves her prophets. These really are the prophets of Jezebel. So after Ahab tells uh, Jezebel what has happened, she threatens Elijah's life because she's mad. And that's what we saw in the scripture verses. Elijah is afraid, and so afraid, in fact, that he runs for his life. And now, to be fair, Elijah knows that what Jezebel is capable of. She is powerful, and she is indeed wicked. So his fear is an understandable reaction. I mean, if someone is trying to kill you, you're probably going to run, right? So it might have been a little convoluted, but that is um, the crux of the story and where Elijah finds himself when he starts to run. But I want to pause here for just a moment and think about this. After all of God's miracles and provision, Elijah is still afraid. I wonder what he thought about himself in those moments with his fear. Did he wonder, what's wrong with me? Why don't I trust God yet? Or, I don't deserve God's protection because apparently my fear means I don't trust him. Or could he have been thinking, after everything God has done for me and everything I have seen, how could I be so weak? Or was he not thinking anything at all? He was just running. And we don't know exactly, but we can imagine how low that moment might have felt for him. Have you ever felt something like this? 
Have you ever experienced a perfectly normal human emotion to just turn inward then and be really hard on yourself? Have you ever felt those, oh, I, I shouldn't feel like this because dot, dot, dot. Or I thought I was more spiritual than this. Am I the only one who has ever thought that? Like, am I not there yet? Why am I here again <laughs> in my life? Or after all these years of following God, how can I still experience such intense fear or sadness or anxiety or whatever it may be? Or have you ever been anxious for being anxious and that made you more anxious? You know what I mean? And have you ever come to the conclusion that that puts distance between you and God? Or worse yet, have you ever been told that it puts distance between you and God? And then how have you dealt with it? Do you mask your feelings and try to be something other than what you are in that moment? Or do you talk with someone and tell the truth about how you're feeling and how you're experiencing life in those moments? Or do you run and run and run until you collapse? So back to poor Elijah. <laughs> I mean, what is going on with him? He's been doing a lot of running because right before he collapses under the bush, it says that he was given power by God to run faster than Ahab, who was in a chariot going back to Jezreel. And somehow he was given power to run with his legs faster back to Jezreel than Ahab's chariot was going. And then we don't really know exactly what happened in that moment before he then heard that Jezebel wants him killed for killing her prophets, and then he just starts running again. So he's been doing a lot of running. He is really stuck in fight or flight, and this, this flight thing is going on. He was in fight with the prophets, and now he's in flight as he's trying to run to save his own life. So what is going on with him? He's so afraid and runs so hard that he ends up under a tree and tells the Lord, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he collapses into sleep. Now, as my dear husband pointed out, if he really wanted his life taken, he could have just stuck around and let Jezebel do her thing, right? So we can assume that this is a low in which these words are an emotional cry. I mean, he wants to die? Think about that. After all the work with God and after seeing everything he's seen and doing everything he's done, he gets to the point where he says, take my life? But that's what he says. So maybe Elijah is so exhausted, he simply doesn't have the energy for life anymore. Or maybe he's so afraid that death under that tree seems like a better option than death under the hand of Jezebel. Maybe a little less brutal. 
Or maybe he's so overwhelmed and traumatized by all those deaths that he just witnessed and took part in that he's now suicidal. And now he's turning all this stress and anger in on himself. So no matter the inner motivations and workings, what we see in Elijah's story is an honest opening up to God. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. You see, complaining to God is a tradition. It's part of our tradition. And it's okay. I mean, as a parent, my children complain to me. They complain to me about me sometimes, but they also complain to me about other things in life. Moses complained to God in Numbers 11. Listen to what Moses said to God. We, we hear what Elijah said, but let's hear what Moses had to say. Why have you treated, uh, treated your servant so badly? Why haven't I found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I brought them forth that you should tell me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to your fathers? Where could I get meat to give all these people? For they weep to me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. If you treat me this way, please kill me right now. If I have found favor in your sight, and don't let me see my wretchedness. So here we are again. Moses saying, let me die because I, I'm no good. Don't even let me see for myself how no good that I am. The psalmists also spend a lot of time lamenting or complaining about their plights. Even Jesus admits to God on the cross that he feels forsaken. So St. Teresa of Avila, maybe you've heard her name before. Um, she was said to have had a difficult time praying. And apparently she was unable to pray for something like 13 years. Can you imagine feeling unable to pray for 13 years? And then after getting knocked off a horse, laying on her back, she is reported to have uttered her first prayer in a long time. Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so many enemies. And God was supposed to have answered back, yep, why do you think I have so few friends? I wonder what she did with that answer that she thought she was receiving from God. So back to dear Elijah and his lamenting. He's in this tradition, and he states, I am no better than my ancestors. We don't know what this means really, but my own interpretation says that Elijah must really feel like a failure. Whatever he was supposed to do or whatever he has been doing is ultimately a big failure. I am no better than my ancestors. Maybe he feels this way because Jezebel is still alive and still doing her thing. 
I mean, that's what it can feel like to have an enemy, someone who's always coming back to try to hurt you in big ways or small. And in Elijah's instance, a very big way, death. I mean, I, I really feel for him here. I feel for how tired he must be, how hopeless. And I wonder what it must feel like to have given it your all and then feel like you just can't do it anymore. Regardless, it seems that Elijah was thinking that whatever he was there to do, he just couldn't do it anymore. Have you ever felt like that? If you haven't, I, I might dare to promise that someday you will. <laughs> Those days where you lay down and you think, I, I just can't do it anymore. I remember having that thought briefly when my precious and miraculous baby girl was born. My son was 16 months old, and this beautiful baby, who doctors said would never be, was here in my home, precious and real and miraculous. I knew she was from God. She defied all the laws of the universe and medical understanding to grace me with her life. And I was utterly exhausted. I hadn't slept a full night in days or weeks or whatever it was. I was losing my mind a little bit. And while I gazed upon the beauty of her every single day and my heart was full, I did find myself one night in the middle of the night yelling to myself, I can't do this anymore. I cannot do this anymore. And of course, I could do it. But in that moment, it just felt so hard. I was so incredibly tired. And that feeling was taking over everything else, at least just for that moment. Or I think of another time when I found myself in an impossibly difficult situation. There was pressure coming at me from all sides, and the scenario held an awful character who seemed to be bent on ruining my life and my husband's life. It was exhausting. It was a time of being perpetually stuck in fight or flight. My mind, body, and spirit were all depleted, and I found myself crying out to God, I quit. I quit. I can't do it anymore. And you know what? I don't even really know what I was quitting on. I mean, it wasn't a job or a task or anything I really had direct control over. I had no control over it as a matter of fact, but I sure felt like giving up. And when I think about my own story and how it's intersecting with all this complaining tradition, I don't know if I even like call it complaining, but it makes it maybe a little more lighthearted. What really scares me is that in the case of Moses and Elijah in St. Teresa of Avila, God answered. And after all my own lamenting and crying out, have I ultimately paid attention to how God is responding to me in that? 
Or is it just a crying out and then closing of the ears? It seems like Elijah's story here can inform our own. It seems to teach us that in our crying out and our honest revealing to God and ourselves about where we are, that God comes in in a more tangible way to sustain and nourish us. Our opening up to God does not repel God or God's care. It really seems to invite him to come closer. Psalm 145.18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. What do we think that that word truth means in this context? The truth that God is the God of Israel and that we need to believe and confess that before calling out to him? Or could it just be the truth of what we're really feeling and experiencing? Just honesty about who we are and where we are. Because as psychologists and neuroscientists know today that it is this sharing that acts as the glue in our most intimate relationships. I mean, can we imagine having a best friend or a spouse with whom we don't share how we're feeling? That we don't call and say, can you believe this just happened to me? Jezebel's after me again. This time she wants me to die. <laughs> and then that person on the other end hopefully knows how to respond and says, you sound really, really stressed right now. I'm sorry this is difficult for you. Sometimes if you have a really good girlfriend, they'll she'll be like, yeah, I know, Jezebel. <laughs> but it is a vulnerable revealing of our truest selves to one another for the sake of caring relationship that ultimately holds us together. We share so we do not have to suffer alone. And while I'm no theologian, I'm pretty sure that's pretty good theology, that we do not suffer alone. And for those of us who call ourselves Christians, this is what helps us to stand out. Not stand out in this idea that we're right or better, but this idea that we had and have a suffering God who went to this length for us to show us that we will not suffer alone. Now, it isn't like I believe that God won't sustain us if we don't honestly assess ourselves or share our emotional states. I mean, many times we, we have no idea what's going on with us, right? I mean, it, am I alone in that sometimes if you sit down? If you have a therapist or a spiritual director and this, what's going on with you? I don't, I have no idea. I haven't thought about it in months. 
And sometimes that is a situation, but God's grace and mercy goes far beyond that. And somehow, when we learn to be more honest, or we just learn honesty and what that feels like, and we are put in context of safety where we can be honest with other people and with God, somehow it opens us up to more awareness of God's beautiful provision in our lives. So I get why some people think that, oh, our anxiety blocks God. But I've come to believe that it isn't that God is blocked. It's just that we haven't cultivated in our own nervous systems, in our minds, in our spirits, the safety to open up an awareness of God's very real provision for us. I think we can all be fed by ravens. And when we're opened up, we finally feel or see or experience where our feet are grounded, where our heart is oriented, and where our mind is directed. And sometimes we find it's misdirected, or we need some regrounding. But this seems to be the case for Elijah in his moment. So as we continue on here, God's provision comes after his opening. He didn't really even have to do anything, right? He just woke up and there's some food and some water. So after a nap and a good snack, he runs off. I saw this somewhere, and I have not forgotten it. Somebody posted something somewhere. I don't know who it was. It said, never underestimate the power of a good snack and a nap. <laughs> and that is so true. And in Elijah's case, it's very true. And what does he do then? He runs again. He takes off for 40 days. Now we know 40 is symbolic, and we're not going to get into that today. But nonetheless, it's a long time, even if it's symbolic. Maybe he really ran for 40 days, but nonetheless, the, the 40 holds some scriptural symbolism in general that could go a little bit deeper there. However, the point is that he continues to tire himself in his fight or flight. And he ends up in that cave. And it's in that moment that God asks Elijah that regrounding, reorienting, and redirecting question. What are you doing here? When I sit with this question, I often find I'm stunned. I've said this to my husband now for weeks, like, what is that question? What do you mean, what are you doing here? What kind of a question is that? What are you doing here? It's kind of a stop you in your tracks type of question. And personally, I'm often at a loss to know what to say. It kind of goes back to that, how is it with you right now? Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> I haven't been thinking about it very much. But Elijah musters up an answer. 
He tells God all about his plight. He tells God about his circumstances. This happened and this happened and Jezebel wants me dead. And God doesn't answer him. Well, he doesn't directly address the circumstances. He doesn't respond to what Elijah says. Instead, he invites Elijah to pay attention to God's presence. He redirects him to himself. There's the wind and the earthquake and fire, and after the fire, God comes back to Elijah. And with a gentle whisper, asks the same question. What are you doing here? I love that because it seems like there was a lot of chaos again, right? So Elijah is asked the question and then there's this, all this wind, the fire, all this tumult and craziness and he's already been involved in these slayings and all this war and I imagine it's been terrible. And God brings down the energy to a whisper. What is this all about? I, mean, I, I really don't have, <laughs> I don't have an answer for you. Sorry if that's disappointing, but no one can really know what God meant with the question. And maybe it ultimately is not at all about the answer. God just doesn't seem concerned about the same things that Elijah's concerned about. God does not dwell on Elijah's fear. He doesn't do the best friend thing. Yeah, I know, Jezebel, she's really, eh, sometimes. He just asks him a question. What I will throw out, though, is that maybe the question was intended to remind Elijah of the call on his life. Elijah had said he wants to die and is no better than his ancestors, and he keeps running. So maybe God is saying, wait, what are we doing here? Maybe it's a reminder to Elijah of his mission. You know that sense of the question, like, wait, 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 what are we doing here? I thought we were making dinner. Why did you run away and start doing this instead? Wait, what are we doing here? Come back. Or, after wanting to die and running for 40 days and finding a cave, is God asking him, what are you doing here in this cave, Elijah? Is this where you want to stay in, in the darkness and the fear and the sadness? Or would you like to continue your mission with me? Or was God asking for Elijah to pay attention to that still small voice? What are you doing here? Oh yeah, God. I, I forgot. I'm listening for you. I'm on the mountain of God. Some scholars say that this is the very mountain where Moses received the commandments, only with a different name. 
If that is the case, wouldn't Elijah probably know that? And is it possible that he was actually running towards God in that 40-day journey to the mountain? Could it be that he knew exactly where to go to hide out, that it was this protective cave of God where he might just have a chance to hear this restoring voice again? Maybe after a bit of food and sleep, Elijah came to his senses and knew exactly where to go for restoration. Maybe he knew exactly what he needed to really refuel. Beyond bread and water, maybe he knew he needed ultimately to hear the voice of God. He needed a retreat to a sacred place away from all the noise and the fear and the trauma so he could be alone with his God. And maybe that question is just that, a question of restoration, the question that regrounded, redirected, and reoriented Elijah. And maybe for us, that is the potential of the cave. It can be a place of hiding or escaping, or it can be in an intentional place of silence and focus on God. And maybe when those questions come, we won't hear the answers that we want to hear. But maybe we will hear the voice that we need. Maybe we're exhausted. Maybe we're in a place where we end up wanting to throw in the towel and just giving up. But perhaps if we are honest with ourselves and God about our level of exhaustion or heartache, it opens the opportunity to be ministered by the Spirit of God himself. So is it perhaps in our time of greatest need and despair that we may find ourselves most tenderly cared for by God? I believe that in the times of our deepest exhaustion, the Lord longs to pass by, to speak to us personally in that still small voice. And this is ultimately what it is all about, presence. The presence of the relational and caring God with us, the one who wants to feed us, the one who wants to be with us, and the one who wants to speak to us. And it is this presence and relationship and voice that will give us what is needed to continue on with our call and our mission whatever it may be. Elijah was tired and afraid, and he ran. God's presence was with him and fed him, and he ran. God's presence was with him, and he spoke to him. And he asked, what are you doing here? And how does it end? Well, basically, God tells him to keep going. 
He never addresses the circumstances. He never addresses the fear or the exhaustion. Rather, he gives Elijah what he really needs and then tells him to continue on. He gets his orders. So, as we close today, let's consider this question for ourselves individually. What are you doing here? And as an exercise to deepen this question, we're going to take the, the question and we're going to put an emphasis on each word separately. And we'll notice how when we do that, something different will bubble up, bubble up each time. I mean, feel free if you're a quick note taker or anything, if something bubbles up, just make, make a note of that for yourself. That bold print, that highlight that we talked about in the beginning. If you notice something happening, come back to it. So first, the question sounds like this. What are you doing here? 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 So this may be a question you take with you this week. Maybe it's a question you take with you communally. If you do take it individually through the week, you could take each emphasis each day and work with it a little differently each day as you go along, just in your mind, through your daily activities. knowing that as you do this, you sit with this story, the story of Elijah. And you sit with your own story, and you sit with God's story. And see what bubbles up. And remember that regardless of what bubbles up, God is with you. God is always with you. So, I'm going to close before communion with this poem entitled Sometimes by David White. Sometimes if you move carefully through the forest, 
breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of leaves without a sound. You come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests. Conceived out of nowhere, but in this place beginning to lead everywhere, requests to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. And questions that have no right to go away. <laughs>